So when Jesus ascended, what became of his sandals? When Jesus ascended, what became of his sandals? That was a question that was asked of an applicant to Cambridge University many years ago by the professor that was interviewing him. Now, the applicant was applying to read not theology, but geography. And needless to say, he was somewhat perplexed by the question. He didn't know what the professor was looking for, where he was going with this. And it should be noted that the the young man was a Christian. He was an evangelical. And after pondering for some time the question, he replied somewhat piously, whatever became of his sandals... Neither you nor I are worthy to untie them. (laughs) We don't really need to ponder the question any more than we already have. But there are other questions that we could ask in relation to Jesus' ascension. After Jesus ascended, what became of the Pharisees? All those men that had opposed Jesus so vehemently, his whole earthly ministry, did any one of them reconsider? Did any one of them turn to follow Christ? When Jesus ascended, what became of the Romans? Those that had played a part in his death that would have been there as he hung on the cross, did any one of them follow the way? Did any one of them become a disciple of the risen Lord Jesus? When Jesus ascended, what became of his disciples? Now, that's actually an easier question to answer because, of course, we have a whole book of the Bible that tells us. I'm referring to the book of Acts. The testimony of what became of his disciples is given to us in the book of Acts, and we see, in short, that they became men that turned the world upside down. Acts chapter 17, these men are accused of having turned the world upside down through the boldness of their preaching, the steadfastness of their testimony and the consistency of their proclamation of Christ's glory. And so the question comes to us, have we made sense of Jesus' ascension in the same way that they had? You see, it's not just, as we examine the book of Acts, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection formed the disciples' theology. It is certainly those things, but in addition, it is Jesus' ascension. In part, that's why Luke gives us the ascension twice. At the end of the gospel and at the beginning of the book of Acts, he is emphasizing to us just how an important an event this was. And as you read through the Acts narrative, one of the things you see is ascension theology all the way through the apostles' preaching. It very much impacted their understanding of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so the challenge to us is whether we have also made sense of the ascension. At some point in church history, the ascension seemed to get lost as an important doctrine. Very early on in church history, we can trace testimony to the significance of the ascension, even within the epistles. Paul writes to Timothy and records an ancient creed, and within that creed, he talks about the vindication of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and as a significant and separate event, the ascension of Christ. 
But somewhere along the way, we seem to have folded the ascension into the resurrection as if they're one and the same event. And they're not. And what it's important for us to do is to form, as best we can, a robust Christology, a fully formed understanding of the man, Christ Jesus. And that would include understanding the significance of his ascension. So this morning, I want to work through these last few verses in the book of Acts, uh, excuse me, in Luke's gospel. I'll make some references to the account at the beginning of Acts, but at the end of Luke's gospel, just four verses on the ascension. And note just seven truths concerning the ascension that should be an encouragement to us. Seven truths about the ascension that should encourage us. And because there's seven points, that means one thing we need to get going. Number one, the ascension, first and foremost, proclaims Christ's return. The ascension proclaims Christ's return. You look in verse 50, and Luke says, Then he, he being Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. And we can stop there and simply ponder, why did Jesus lead them out to Bethany in order to ascend? Or to put it another way, why didn't Jesus ascend from Jerusalem? That was Mission HQ. That's where all the crowds were. Surely, it would have made more sense for Jesus to ascend from Jerusalem. And yet, he leads them out on a journey to Bethany in order to ascend. So why does he do that? The answer starts to become clear as we consider a motif that is weaved all the way through Luke and Acts, and that is one of journeying. Luke loves to make much of journeys. So think about Luke's gospel. It's in Luke's gospel that we read of Mary's journey to see her cousin Elizabeth, and she receives incredible news when she does so. It's in Luke's gospel and only Luke's gospel that we read the parable of the prodigal son, which is a story of a journey. It's in Luke's gospel that we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it's only in Luke's gospel that we read of that journey. It's only in Luke's gospel that we read about the journey on the road to Emmaus at the very end when the travelers are walking and they meet Jesus. Then we go into the book of Acts and we find more journeys. There is the journey of the Ethiopian eunuch who's traveling back from Jerusalem and meets Philip. There is the journey of Paul on the road to Damascus and there he meets the risen Lord Jesus. And there is at the very end a long journey as Paul is traveling by sea to get to Rome. And there are, in fact, more journeys that we could list. All the way through, Luke makes much of journeys. So why does he do that? In part, the significance is found when you realize that just about every journey in Luke-Acts contains within it a surprising manifestation of God's grace. A surprising manifestation of God's grace is found in Luke's journey. Think again about that Ethiopian eunuch. He's coming back from Jerusalem to worship, and just incidentally, he meets Philip, who explains to him the text of Isaiah, and he is saved and baptized. He wasn't expecting that, but he meets God's grace on the way. So now, think about the fact that Luke's gospel ends with one last journey, It is the journey of Jesus leading his disciples to Bethany. And you say, well, where is the surprising manifestation of God's grace? And the answer is you have to realize this is only half the journey. This is not the complete journey. Then going out to Bethany is the first half of it. 
You see, at the end of Luke's gospel, in the beginning of Acts, Luke actually starts to zero in on a number of rhetorical questions that teaches us the point of the text. There are four of them in total. It begins with the empty tomb, when the angels ask, why do you seek for the living amongst the dead? The point being, Jesus is alive. Then, on the road to Emmaus, the disciples meet Jesus himself, and he asks a rhetorical question. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer in this way? The point being, it was, it was part and parcel of the gospel plan. Then Jesus appears to his disciples, and he says, why are you troubled and fearful, The point is, I'm here, you don't need to be afraid. And the last rhetorical question was read for us earlier this morning in Acts chapter 1, when the angels say to the disciples, why do you stand there gazing into heaven? And they actually give the answer this time. They say, Jesus is coming back in exactly the same way that you have seen him depart. The point being, this journey to Bethany is but half of the journey. And the second half comes when Jesus returns to us. The first point of the ascension is to note that it marks the certainty of Christ's return. Christ is coming back. And as we ponder the ascension in our hearts, we can be greatly encouraged. We can be greatly encouraged to know that one day, very soon, Jesus Christ will appear. And when he does, he will take his people with him. And that is a great encouragement to us. Secondly, the ascension tells us that all is going to plan. All is going to plan. You see, Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and then he lifts up his hands and he blesses them. As Jesus does this, he's not doing it without precedent. He's not doing it in isolation from any other blessings that we read in Scripture. In fact, what Jesus is doing here is entering into an established Old Testament pattern. So we can walk through the Old Testament and Scriptures and see how time and again the leader of God's people at the point of his departure would lift up his hands and he would bless those that he was leaving behind. You think about Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. They all give this parting blessing. And as they raise their hands, it's a symbolic gesture, so as to say, in the way that God has been with me, so also he will be with you. The notion of the blessing was to pass on the sense of God's goodness to these people, even though the leader would no longer be with them. A lot of people have suggested that here, Quite possibly, we even know what Jesus would have said to them. In accordance with the Old Testament precedent, quite possibly, Jesus would have recited the ironic blessing from number six to his disciples. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance and the Lord's presence be with you. So that's a great encouragement to the disciples and so also to us because the implication is that this blessing was not for them in isolation, but it actually comes to us in the same way. We actually see this point being drawn out for us throughout all of the the paintings of the ascension throughout church history. As you look at the various paintings that sought to depict the ascension, one thing that is common to a lot of them is that around Jesus' feet as he ascends, And not the disciples alone, but actually the church. 
You can find a lot of paintings throughout church history where as Jesus ascends, there are thousands of people at his feet and not just the disciples. The point being, what happens here transmits to us today. This blessing is as true for us as it was for the disciples. So it seems like that's a great encouragement. The problem is you need to consider the rest of the story. It's only a few chapters later that these same men are being mocked for their faith. It's only a few chapters later that Stephen is stoned to death for his testimony concerning Christ. It's only a few chapters later before James is killed. It's a few chapters later before the Apostle Paul is imprisoned in Rome with no hope of getting out anytime soon. So as you think about the whole story, you see that actually a tension arises Did Jesus' blessing fail this day? Was it somehow not quite true for these men? How do we reconcile what happens in the book of Acts as it relates to their persecution with this blessing? And the answer is you reconcile the two by developing what I call Luke's theology of necessity. We have to have an understanding of Luke's theology of necessity. Now, what do I mean by that? If you read through Luke Acts, what you'll read many, many times are the words, it is necessary. It's one word in the original language. It's Luke's favorite word. It occurs about a hundred times in the New Testament. Nearly half of those are in Luke Acts. He can't keep it back as he's writing. He keeps telling us, it is necessary. He's showing us that everything that happens in this gospel and in the book of Acts had to happen this way. He's saying it could not have happened any other way. Luke is telling us this was God's perfect plan. And in the same way that this blessing is as true for us today as it was for these men, so also is Luke's theology of necessity. Anything that comes your way as a child of God is God's perfect plan for you. We affirm God's sovereignty over our lives in every single detail, in every trial, in every difficulty. You see, as Jesus blesses these disciples, as as we readily accept that he blesses us, that is not to say by any means that Jesus is guaranteeing us a life free from pain or struggle But rather, we can be assured that whatever comes our way was absolutely necessary for God's glory and for our good. And so as we look at this blessing, as we develop our theology of necessity, we can be greatly encouraged thinking about the ascension. Thirdly, the ascension speaks of our power, speaks of our power. You see, in verse 51, we read for a second time that Jesus blessed them. He lifted up his hands, he blessed them. Then verse 51, while blessing them, he parted from them. Now, it's difficult to overstate the significance of verse 51. While blessing them, he parted. Why is that so important? Another thing to notice about those Old Testament blessings is that as the leader left his people 
And he assured them that as God has been with me, so also he will be with you. The other thing to know is that he would pass on his status, his office, to the one being blessed. So you think about the patriarch blessing his son. As Isaac blesses Jacob, he passes on that office of the patriarch. He passes on the firstborn blessing. As Jacob then blesses his 12 sons, one of them gets the blessing of the firstborn and he becomes the leader of the family. The status, the office held by the blesser gets passed on to the one being blessed. So Jesus blesses them. Notice he doesn't bless them in his role as a carpenter. Jesus doesn't bless them in his humble, lowly estate. Jesus does not bless them from the cross. Jesus doesn't even bless them as he emerges from the tomb in his resurrected body. Rather, Jesus blesses them as he ascends. Which means the blessing they receive comes from the exalted Christ. Jesus blesses them as the exalted Christ. And they receive that. It is not to say that the the men have a power and authority in and of themselves, but rather this defines their identity as mediators of the exalted Christ. They become mediators of the exalted Christ. This explains so much about what happens in the book of Acts. We go into the Acts narrative and we see these, these bold men who in the gospel were so uncertain of what it was they believed, they were so uncertain so often of who Jesus was. And now in the gospel, in in the narrative of Acts, they're so bold. And they're so steadfast in their preaching of the singularity of Christ, that there is no other name given amongst men under heaven by which we can be saved. Knowing that as they preach that message, most likely persecution and maybe even death will come. And yet they don't flinch. So how is that? Because they understand that they are mediators of the exalted Christ. Think about Stephen. We were in family hour this morning and one of the questions that kept coming up, who is your favorite Bible character? Mine's Stephen. He's in the narrative for such a brief period of time. His face is shining like an angel. And then he gets up and he preaches this sermon. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And the Jews that heard it picked up stones so as to kill him. Now, why did they pick up the stones? Because he preached long. No, it wasn't that. (laughs) Because he preached an offensive message. They didn't like what they were hearing. He was rebuking them for having rejected Christ. And then they throw the rocks at his body. And just picture this, they throw rocks at his body over and over and over until his heart stops beating. And in that moment, Stephen doesn't run. He doesn't panic. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't get angry. He simply looks up to heaven and he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Every single time I read the account of Stephen, I just think, how is it that a man can respond like that? 
And the answer is because he sees the exalted Christ. He's looking at the ascended Lord Jesus. That's where he gets his sense of who he is. He's interpreting the whole situation in light of the ascended Christ. And so you fast forward to today, and the world has gone nuts. Identity politics is a thing, and everybody is running contrary to lines of logic that have been in place since the beginning of time. And don't think that we can escape those politics, those demands to define yourself in accordance with the culture are real. But it's actually very easy to enter into that. When you're asked who you are, you say, I'm a mediator of the exalted Christ. That's who I am. And by that, you can be greatly encouraged. Number four, the ascension speaks of Christ's intercession. The ascension speaks of Christ's intercession. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. It's significant that Luke records for us that Jesus was carried into heaven. It's not an unimportant detail. It's critically important. Now, why is that? Again, think about the alternative. The alternative is that Jesus, having resurrected from the grave, having spent time with his disciples, remained on earth. That's the alternative. And I do think sometimes, as we ponder the ascension, we perhaps think that that would have been better. Why couldn't Jesus have remained with us? Why couldn't Jesus be here today, guiding us, continuing to teach us, correcting us when we take a misstep? Or to put it another way, sometimes we think about it as if these guys had a far better deal than we did. They were with Jesus. We haven't seen him bodily, face to face. They had a better deal than we did. Nothing could be further from the truth. The reason being, because as Christ ascended into heaven, you understand he is not resting. Jesus is not in heaven doing nothing. So what is he doing? Answer, he is interceding for us. One of the greatest and most comforting truths about Christ is his intercessory ministry for you. This very hour, Jesus is pleading your case before the Father. Romans, Hebrews 7 verse 25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, for he ever lives to make intercession for us. Which means as Jesus ascended, his prayers began. The second you put your faith in him, he began an intercessory ministry for you. And he prays for you hour by hour by hour, never failing. When you have few thoughts of Christ, he has many for you. When you don't think to pray, all he does is pray. And what is it that Jesus prays for you again Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost, meaning he is able to get you over the finish line. He is able to get you to the very end, to save to the uttermost. How? By his intercessory prayers. So you can be encouraged that Jesus ascended into heaven. 
that he is praying every hour of every day so as to make sure that you don't make shipwreck of your faith. That's the truth of Christ's intercessory ministry. And I want to be really clear. It is a truth that is reserved for the children of God. If you are here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ savingly, we love that you're here. But this is not true for you. Christ does not have prayers for you. John Owen wrote a book, the last book he wrote before he went to be with Christ was entitled The Glory of Christ. And there, very early on in the book, he makes plain that those who have not settled in their heart that Jesus is Lord and Savior, God's ear is shut to them. And in reciprocal manner, Jesus doesn't pray for you. Put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, knowing that you are made right with God. And from that very second, the ascended Lord Jesus begins to pray for you. Number five, the ascension foreshadows our exaltation. The ascension foreshadows our exaltation. We read in verse 52, and they worshipped him. The verb there is to prostrate yourself on the floor, to abase yourself, to fall down flat on the floor, face down. And this marks a, a hinge point in this short text. You see, up until now, Jesus has been doing everything. He's been the primary actor in this narrative. And then at verse 52, it shifts to look at what the disciples did in response. And the first thing Luke records is that they responded by falling flat on their face. The verb is a verb that is appropriate behavior for when a king enters into the room. If a king were to enter into the room, everyone would, would fall down, prostrate on the floor. And, and that's exactly how the disciples respond as Jesus ascends. And it's actually a wonderful picture with which to end the gospel. The reason being, because if you picture it, this is the last time the disciples and Jesus are together. The picture that Luke paints for us is of a risen Lord Jesus in the sky and the disciples flat on their face. And that sums up the theology of Luke's gospel. You see, we have four gospels, four portraits of Christ. And every gospel author places a slightly different emphasis on Jesus' life. They all agree completely with the theological truth concerning Christ. And yet, as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write about his life, they put different points of emphasis on Jesus' ministry. One of the things that Luke in particular emphasizes is the simple truth that God exalts the humble and tears down the proud. That's a constant idea that we're given all the way through Luke's gospel. It begins at the very beginning with Mary's Magnificat. 
She's a humble servant, and she sings the Lord the, the, the same theological truth that we'll find all the way through the rest of the gospel. She says, you have looked on my humble estate. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. You've seen my humility, and as a result, you have elevated me. And then she goes on to say, and you, God, shatter the hearts of the proud. You tear down the proud of heart. And that idea carries on. That's why in Luke's gospel, we see such an emphasis on the, on the lowly and the outcast. Luke, more than anyone else, draws attention to the, to the women in Jesus' ministry who would have had a very low place in society back then. He draws attention to the lepers and to the sick and to the poor all the way through Luke's gospel. And he continually shows them how Jesus honors them. The lowly God will elevate, but the proud he tears down. And then, of course, the most evident example of that is Jesus himself. He came in the form of a man, a humble and lowly servant, not to be served, but to serve. And so Paul tells us in Philippians, he didn't Consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross, and therefore God raised him up and gave him a name above all other names. That's ascension theology. Now, the disciples are a funny bunch. They're kind of stuck in the middle of this paradigm, and they can't quite figure it out. They're walking with Jesus through the gospel, struggling to understand who is this man. And along the way, they make some almighty blunders as they ask questions like, can I sit at your right hand? Who's your favorite disciple? They can't get their their mind around it. And then at the very close of the gospel, they see it. They see Christ for who he is ascended, exalted, and they fall flat on their face. It is a perfect picture of Luke's theology, and that very same theology comes to us today. The Christian life is not intended to be one where we are exalted now. But you understand that their present humiliation at the end of Luke's gospel simply portends their eventual exaltation. You see, you might ask, how is it that these disciples not only fall on their face here, but are able to maintain such a humble and lowly posture all the way through the book of Acts? Because there aren't those same pride issues after this. There aren't those problems in the book of Acts where they're struggling to think of who Jesus is and who they are in relation to him. Rather, they get it and they keep getting it and they live out a humble earthly life. And the answer is because they know that one day, not now, but one day, they will be exalted. And I think in church history, we've had a much better understanding of this than perhaps we do today. Again, along the way, we lost the significance of the ascension. But it wasn't that long ago that Christians used to celebrate Ascension Day. It used to be a a day in the calendar where Christians would put aside all work and labor and they would celebrate the fact of Christ's ascension. Many hundreds of years ago, a very interesting thing that they used to do in London on Ascension Day 
was to gather up all of the orphans in the city. All of the orphans from the orphanages would be brought together. They would be scrubbed down and washed. And then they would be dressed in brightly colored clothing. And these orphans, thousands of them, would be led through the streets of London. So this brightly colored army of little children would walk through the gray, drab streets of London. And they would be led to St. Paul's Cathedral. And if you've ever been to St. Paul's Cathedral, you'll know it's an incredible building. And it has a dome on top that's called the Whispering Gallery. You can go up there and you can, you can speak a word quietly to the wall and it resonates all the way around and comes back to you. So these children are led into St. Paul's Cathedral and there they form a choir and they would sing songs about Christ's ascension. And William Blake wrote a poem about this very practice and he depicted the children as this river flowing through London. And then the choir in the cathedral, he depicted as the children themselves going up to heaven. Because the theological reality is that Christ's ascension speaks to us of our eventual exaltation. One day we will be elevated with Christ. And that's a great encouragement. Because nobody today is going to congratulate you for coming to church. Nobody today is going to congratulate you for spending your life for the sake of the gospel. The world is not going to applaud you for spending yourself so as to advance the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's okay. You don't need the world's applause because one day you'll be exalted with Christ. And the ascension tells us that. Number six, the ascension gives us purpose. The ascension gives us purpose. We read in verse 52, they worshipped him, and then they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So why the return to Jerusalem? In part, because there was work to be done. Jim read for us from Acts chapter 1 this morning. That's the second account of the ascension that Luke gives to us. It's a slightly fuller account. And you'll remember that there Jesus tells them, you have work to be done. He says to them specifically, you are to preach this gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the mission statement. And the wonderful thing about the book of Acts is it follows that trajectory exactly. Luke is showing us in the Acts narrative that the gospel did exactly what Jesus said it was going to do. They preached the gospel in Jerusalem. And then in in God's wisdom, using the persecution and the death of Stephen, it spilled out into Judea and Samaria. And then again, through God's sovereign hand, it went out to the ends of the earth. So we see the gospel advancing in the book of Acts in accordance with the mission that Jesus gave to the disciples. But do not think when you get to the book of Acts, at the end of the book of Acts, that the work is done. It's not done. The book ends with Paul under house arrest. It's a short, sharp ending. And people often question, why did Luke end so abruptly? 
at least in part, it is to tell us we haven't had our happy end ever after ending just yet. There is more work to be done. The mission continues. And in a very real way, you and I stand here this morning picking up the baton from those apostles, ready to run the race of proclaiming the gospel for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us Christians an immense privilege. By saving us, he has called us to the work of making him known. And that work continues today. And the sad reality is that there are so many Christians that live their lives as consumers. They are saved by the gospel of grace and then they do nothing in response. There are so many Christians living out their lives basking in the glory of sins forgiven and yet in no way seeking to assume the responsibility of the gospel ministry. Each and every Christian is a minister of the truth. God has called you to communicate the truth of the gospel. Communicate it to one another when we gather on a Sunday. Speak the truth in love to one another. One of the greatest things you can do to encourage a brother or sister in Christ is simply to remind them the truth of the gospel. And then with all humility and all grace, you speak the truth in love to those outside of the church. Some of the saddest Christians are those who have acknowledged Jesus as Lord and Savior and yet done nothing in response. God has hardwired us to serve. And that is where true fulfillment comes. It's when you set your face to serve him that you're truly fulfilled as a believer. And the work continues, and in that, you can be greatly encouraged. Finally, the ascension informs us of our worship. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They weren't hesitant to get to the mission. They raced back to the city so as to pick up the baton. And then verse 53, they were continually in the temple blessing God. Again, it's just remarkable to note how Luke orders his narrative. At the very beginning, we read of a temple episode. So the temple forms a bookend in Luke's gospel. The beginning and the end of the gospel is found with these people in the temple. At the beginning, it's Simeon. And you'll remember there, he sees Christ and he says, I can go now. I'm ready to go because, why? My eyes have seen my salvation. And the disciples, in the same way, run towards the temple, responding in worship continuously. If you went back to this day, the days after Jesus' ascension, and you were looking for one of these men, the answer would always be, oh, he's in the temple. Where's so-and-so? He's in the temple. He's worshiping God in light of the truth of the gospel. And it should be no different for us. As we look at the life of Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension, the only right thing for God's people to do is to worship him. You see how the ascension even starts to inform our ecclesiology. 
the ascension even starts to teach us about how we should think of the church. It should be true of you that when people say on a Sunday, where is he? Of course he's at church. Where is so-and-so? Oh, on Sundays they're at church. Where else would they be? Where else would they be? He follows the risen Lord Jesus, so on the Lord's day, he's with the Lord's people. May the ascension inform our understanding of Christ and our lives day by day as we seek to honor him. Pray with me to close. Father, we do praise you this morning for the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that he didn't remain with us, but that he went up into heaven. We give you thanks that the ascension teaches us that Christ is returning, that everything is good in your plan. It is necessary that we are mediators of the exalted Christ that one day we will be exalted with him, that there is work to be done and that we can worship him in spirit and truth each and every Lord's Day as your people. I do pray that you would continue to teach us about the Lord Jesus. Help us to have a full grasp of him, of his gospel, and how our lives should be ordered in response. Father, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.